Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Michael, and today we are continuing our series, uh, which focuses upon the seven I Am statements in the Gospel of John. If you are just joining us this Sunday morning, we've been in this series now for two weeks. This is our third. So let me rehearse with you. So far in John chapter 6, we learned indeed that Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies our deepest longings. And we found last week in John chapter 8 that Jesus is the light of the world who has indeed rescued us from the darkness of our sin. Well, this morning you're invited to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 10, verse 7 through 10. As we consider what Jesus means when he says, I am the door of the sheep. The words will be on the screen behind me as well. You could turn to page 758 in the Pew Bible there and you will be able to find John chapter 10 and follow along with us this morning. Once you've found the passage, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We do that here at First Southern as a way of acknowledging that God is King and that His Word has complete and absolute authority in our lives. Let's listen in as John records the words of Jesus. Verse 7, John 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we pause in this moment. We ask that your spirit would indeed take your word and teach us this morning. Father, where we are not living in full abundance of life, Father, bring conviction. You have offered it. May we walk in it. For those in this room who do not know Christ, I pray today would be the day that they would walk through the door and that they would understand the gift of salvation through Christ. Teach us, we pray. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I was thinking about this statement, I am the door, this week. And I was thinking about, in the Scriptures, there's no more famous door in all of the Bible than the door or the gateway to heaven, the means and the, 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 the place, the way to, uh, to enter into relationship with God. So when Jesus says, I am the door, it is, it is the iconic door if you will, in all of Scripture. Well, that sent me down to creative mode. I had a few minutes of thinking, and I began to think about what are some other iconic doors that we know from, um, from history, iconic doors we know from movies and books and even our own personal experiences. Think about historically... Um, the door in, of the church in Wittenberg, October 31st in 1517, a priest by the name of Martin Luther walked up to the door and nailed 95, a list of 95 objections, things he wanted to talk about and have theological debate. So that door there in Wittenberg is a famous door that we would know. I think about, you finish the sentence, number 10 Downing Street, right? 
we can imagine that door and we can see the brass number 10 plastered there. And we know that that is where the Prime Minister of Great Britain resides. I also started thinking about movies and TV shows. For me, I think of Narnia, right? Can you imagine which door I'm speaking of? Right? The wardrobe door, right? You open that door, and as a kid, even as an adult, you just imagine, wouldn't it be incredible to have one of those in your house? To be able to step through. Maybe you love the Hobbit. Any Hobbit lovers in the room? Bilbo's door, what color was it? Green with a brass knob, and it was square? Round. Some movie lovers in the room, right? So we know that round hole is hobbit hole, right? I think of Monsters, Inc. Any Monster, Inc. lovers? Uh, No kiddos? Come on. A couple, all right. You know which door I'm talking about. My personal favorite, I think, the gateway to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Any lovers there? Think about it. These are iconic, right? We, we, we can say these phrases and these images come to our mind. We know exactly what they mean. We know what they look like. They're iconic doors. They're easily recognizable, if you will. But in the passage that we read this morning and that we're about to talk about, the religious leaders of Jesus' day They did not recognize the most iconic door, the most significant gateway in all of the Scriptures. And he was right in front of their face. Jesus said to them, I am the door of the sheep. I'm the gateway to heaven. I'm the means of salvation. And so we want to talk about that this morning. We want to talk about the fact that Christ is the means, the door, the gate, under relationship with the Heavenly Father. When the verses that immediately precede our passage, Jesus calls the religious leaders of His day, the ones who did not recognize Him as the door of salvation, He calls these leaders thieves and robbers. That must have caused Him to be in favor with them. Instead of serving and caring for the flock, those religious leaders used the flock. Instead of spiritually feeding the sheep, they starved them. Instead of keeping them safe, they always seemed to put them in harm's way. The reality is, two weeks ago we talked about in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Before he began to teach that, he walked up on the hill and he saw thousands spread. And Mark said that, in Mark chapter 6, that Jesus was moved to compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so indeed, the shepherds had failed to feed the flock, had failed to protect the flock. Matter of fact, the, the, the shepherds of Israel were using the flock. And so... Not only is Jesus in these verses preceding and even presently here rebuking these leaders, he's challenging something. You see it? He's challenging their assumption that they are the ones who control access to God. If we go back to John chapter 9, we know of the healing of the blind man. And the blind man 
Christmas is it points toward Jesus as the obviously the one who has healed him. The Pharisees have called him in, and they're they're questioning him, they're interrogating him, and he finally says, "Well, do you also want to know Jesus?" And they get angry. And they cast him out of the temple. And when they do that, they think that they are removing his access to God. They really did see themselves as the religious gatekeepers of the time. Jesus, though, is not going to stand for this. He says, in essence, let me introduce myself to you. I, I am the gate. Oh, let me tell you who I am. I, I am the door. I am the one who serves as the righteous mediator. I am the one who is, in the, is the entry way into eternal life. So with that mindset, listen again to verse 7. So Jesus said again to them, truly, truly. Let me get your attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now the second time he has called them that. But the sheep did not listen to them. Jesus here makes it absolutely clear. He is the door. He is the way into eternal life. Well, this idea of the door being connected to eternal life is present in ancient literature outside of the Bible. But it is clearly contained within the Scriptures. From the very earliest book, Genesis chapter 28, Jacob's dream of the ladder to heaven is recounted. You perhaps know that story. He has this dream of the angels ascending and descending on this ladder. God is standing at the top of the ladder. In the midst of that, listen to what Jacob writes and says when he wakes up. Genesis chapter 28, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and the gate or the door of heaven. He called that place Bethel, the house of God. And he set up a monument, a a place, an altar of worship there. The psalmist writes in Psalm 118, This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. And we find Jesus using the same language in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, as he speaks of the entry into the kingdom. Verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The Apostle John himself has a vision that he records in Revelation chapter 4. Verse 1, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So indeed, from Genesis through Revelation, we see this image of door or gateway 
to heaven. And so it's no surprise that Jesus declares that He is indeed the door to salvation. He is the means of eternal life. He is our Savior. Think about that. I am certain that if I were to just go do a man-on-the-street interview, if I were to ask a hundred people, 80 out of a hundred, maybe more, If I were to ask them, assuming first that they believe in heaven, so ask that question. Secondly, for those who do, if I were to ask, how do you get to heaven? I would tell you that 8 out of 10 would respond with some evidence of good works. They would say something like, well, you know, I don't know. I hope that at the end I've been, you want to finish it? I hope that I've been good enough. Oh, My goodness. I hope that the eternal scales of heaven are weighted to my edge. Even if only by a gram, the weight of a paperclip. It'll it'll just tip it in my balance and God will be favorable to me and let me into heaven. And Peter will say, come in! Listen, I'm not not trying to, to... To be rude to those folks, I'm just saying that's the reality of those conversations. And you and I have both, if we've engaged in evangelism, we have had that conversation time and time again. Especially even those who are religious in nature. Some in Christian churches, but many in other uh, false religions. Think about it. Every other world religion, besides Christianity, every single one of them posits earning your salvation. That you must be righteous enough. That your good works are the doorway to heaven. Oh, church, listen. Hear me. If, if somehow you think that is the truth, I, I want to ask you to change your mind this morning. The prophet tells us, and, I, and I've shared this with you before, and I'll share it with you many more times. He says, that, he says that our good works are as filthy rags. Our works of righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord. They have no measure. Our good works, church, are not the entryway into eternal life. Jesus Christ did the work. Amen? He atoned for our sin. He died on the cross to pay the sin debt. He took on the wrath, the just wrath of the Father. And the Father's wrath was satisfied. And then to indeed demonstrate that 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 sacrifice was enough and that that atonement was finished, He was raised from the dead. To overcome the power of sin, Satan, and death. In order that, he would demonstrate that he was the doorway to heaven. Jesus Christ. When he says, I am the door of the sheep, he's making it clear he is the only means by which man can be saved. So if you're here this morning and you're trying to work your way to heaven, give it up. Give it up. You're not going to get there. It's not going to work. 
And if Christian, Christian, genuine believer, if you have somehow allowed that false gospel to work its way back into your life, rip it out. Rip it out. Part of why we confess our sin in the middle of our worship service is indeed to acknowledge God's holiness and our sinfulness. Even as redeemed, we still continue to sin. So we want to confess that and be made right with God. We want to be in right fellowship. But we also do it that we can take a moment to revel in God's grace and to express our gratitude for our salvation in Him. So indeed, Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is the doorway and the entry into eternal life. Jesus also makes it clear in verse 8 that the messianic pretenders, that the religious leaders, even of his own day, are not the ones who control entry into the kingdom. They are not the gatekeepers. As a matter of fact, because these religious leaders of the day, these Pharisees, had rejected Christ as Savior, they proved themselves indeed to be imposters. Notice in verse 8 as well, the sheep, the true sheep of God, did not listen to them. Have you ever thought about that? There is a spiritual discernment among true followers of Christ. True followers of Christ will not follow a religious stranger, a false savior. Why? Because we have been given and we further develop our ability to hear the voice of God. By the Spirit of God, we have the ability, we have the spiritual discernment to hear the voice of the Spirit. Say, Michael, I've never heard God speak audibly, perhaps. Well, I haven't either. But I have heard God, through the Word of God, speak clearly. And here's the thing, church. That, that is how God speaks to us predominantly today. Predominantly through the special revelation of the Word of God. And think about that with me. The Lord has given us spiritual discernment to open the Bible. The Spirit is the one who wrote the Word through men. Every word is inspired. It is authoritative. We can trust it. It's sufficient for our needs. We can look to it for guidance and direction. And here's the beautiful thing. The Holy Spirit will give us wisdom and understanding of the Word of God. So, he gives us spiritual discernment. And that spiritual discernment, church, it's refined. It's refined as we labor in the Word, as we seek to know the will of God through the Word of God. I love Charles Spurgeon's statement. He speaks of what we would call the illumination by the Holy Spirit. So, so when we read the Bible, the word illumine, obviously, light. So Spurgeon speaks of this idea that when we read the Word... Part of the role of the Spirit of God is to shine a bright light on the Scripture. And He speaks of those moments, those occasions. It doesn't happen every day, for sure. 
But those moments and occasions where it seems the bright light of the Holy Spirit is shining on a particular passage, or maybe even a phrase of a sentence in the Word of God. And he talks about it being like gold leaf on a page. It's brilliant. It, it captures our attention and our imagination. In church, it gives us the ability to know the words of the shepherd. To know the voice of God. And to have discernment not to listen to those who are false prophets, false teachers, false saviors. Jesus, listen, every one of them that's come before me, they have been thieves and robbers. Oh, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Let me pause here for a second. Do you have a steady diet of God's Word in your life? Are you eating from the Lord's table every day of your life? Listen, I, I don't mean legalistically, like you've got to check the box. Like, if I don't do this, I'm not a good Christian. But God does say, meditate on my word day and night. Hide my word in your heart that you would not sin against me. The will of God is not all that mysterious, actually. It's contained right here in the pages from Genesis to Revelation. Listen, if you don't have a steady diet, here's the, here's the concern I have pastorally. My concern is that your spiritual discernment will be lessened and that you somehow will listen to the thieves and the robbers and the false teachers and be drawn away from the fault. So lean in. Dig in to the Word of God. If that's not a regular habit, here's my challenge. It's really, really simple. I call it the 7, 5, and 5 plan. Take the next seven days between today and next Sunday as we gather. Spend five minutes reading the Word, the Gospel of John. Read a chapter. You can probably almost read a chapter of the Gospel of John in five minutes. And then pray. Just pray for five minutes. Seven days, five minutes in the Word, five minutes in prayer. Get to work ten minutes early. Get up ten minutes early. Right? Sit on the front porch for ten minutes before you go into the house. I don't know when your time is and where the place is. Seven, five, and five. Are you up for that challenge? And if you're doing more, uh, don't reduce it, okay? But that's how we get spiritual discernment. And that's how we know God's Word. In verse 9, Jesus reiterates that He is the door and the only entry into salvation. I am the door. If anyone enters by Me, He will be what? Saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus makes it clear again. I am the door. I'm not the thief and the robber. I, I'm the door. I'm the means. But I think he also means more here than just I'm the Savior. I think it might be helpful for us to pause a minute and think about what the shepherd pen would have looked like when Jesus spoke. Most of the time, it could have been different depending on the particular village, community. But oftentimes, you would have likely someone's home, one of the local shepherd's homes. They would have built a pen 
And one of the walls would have been the house, likely. And they would have had a pen, four-sided pen. There had been a doorway. And there were times, depending on the shepherd, depending on the situation, especially if it was a make, uh, 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 if they were out in the wilderness and couldn't make their way back home, they would make some shift, uh, makeshift kind of pen similar to that. But you can imagine a pen like so. And there were times that the shepherd would literally sit down, stretch out his legs, and lean against the fence post and would become the door, the gate. You see the image? Maybe he has his legs crouched up, right? And he sits there all night doing what? Protecting. Any sheep that was going to attempt to leave would have to go over his body. He would certainly stop it. And any wolf or predator that wanted to make his way in to avail himself of the sheep would have to go over the shepherd's body. So in this, part of what Jesus is saying, I think, is not only am I the Savior, I am indeed protector. I'm glad to have a protector. I'm glad to have the great shepherd who watches over my soul and who protects me from those who seek my harm. Jesus will safeguard his children. There's also here an echo of covenantal blessings spoken of in Deuteronomy 28. Let me just read verse 6. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. In the context of covenant relationship with God, God is saying, listen, I, I, will, I will protect you, and I will be the doorway, and I will bless you as you come in and as you go out. There is freedom in our walk with God. There is joy in that walk. And he says, I will pour out blessings in your life. Finally, in verse 10. Jesus furthers his promise, not only am I going to protect you, but he furthers that promise as he contrasts himself with the corrupted religious leaders. Listen to verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and may have it abundantly. Listen, here in verse 10 he is saying of the Pharisees, they have come to steal, kill, and destroy your life. That's what the present religious leaders are attempting to do. Anytime you see threes, we call them triads, anytime you see that in Scripture, it ought to grab our attention. Jesus uses them. Think about, again, back in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about prayer. And he says that we are to ask, seek, and knock. So every time we see these these threes, these couplets, these threes, we ought to, these triads, we ought to be mindful that there's an emphasis that's taking place. Here the use of these three verbs is intended to intensify the indictment and the rebuke of the leaders who had failed to lead God's people, God's sheep to rich pasture. He's saying they have a clear intent. That intent is to kill and destroy your life. Jesus says, in contrast, I've not come to take from you. 
I've not come to kill you. I've not come to destroy you. No, I have come to save you. I've come to protect you. And I've come to provide for you. I've come that you may have eternal life and you may have life abundant. Jesus is making a promise, a promise of provision, provision of blessings for his sheep. We said last week that when Jesus makes these seven statements in the Gospel of John, he is revealing something of himself, and he's doing something else. He's making a promise to all of his followers, that which he will do on our behalf. This is why I love studying these seven statements in the Gospel of John. I personally want to know Christ more. Anytime Jesus makes an I am statement, and then add something to that, a phrase, I want to know what that something is. I want to know what it means. I want to spend the time to labor in the Scriptures that I might know Him more. Oh, and I do want to understand the blessings. I want to understand the blessings that He is in store for my life. I need to know His promises. Why? Just so that I can cash in on them like it's a transaction? No, so that I can cling to him and I can find hope for life, especially, church, in those difficult moments and seasons and trials. I need to know who Christ, my shepherd, is. And I need to know what he's promised. That's why I'm begging you. Let us be a people of the word. Let us be a people who spend every single day at least a few minutes studying the scriptures. Not that we would become theological bobbleheads filled with knowledge, but that we might become people whose hearts or affections are oversized for Christ. So what's the revelation in these few verses? In these four verses, we learn that Jesus is our Savior, our protector, and our provider of abundant life. We have heard his promise to save all who enter by the means of his shed blood. We've heard the promise that he will protect each sheep. If need be, he will be the shepherd who sits in the doorway to ensure that we remain in Christ and to protect us from all who will do us harm. And he has promised to provide us abundant life. So, it's the last one of these promises that begs the question in a few last minutes of our time together. What does it mean to be given abundant life? That's a beautiful promise, isn't it? Like, I don't know what all it is, but I want it, right? Any any takers? Uh, I see no hands. Jesus, I'll give you abundant life. Not only eternal life, but but I'm going to give you abundant life. I want to be a provider of blessings in your life. So here, are we talking about a prosperity gospel that's preached? That all will be well, everything will be easy, and you will be wealthy. No. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what Jesus means by abundant life. Would that abundance be evidence in financial financial, uh, means of our life? Does it mean that we would be recipient of nicer toys and things? As you guess, the answer is no. Though some Christians do prosper financially, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's honest profit. And there's generosity in the midst of that? That's not what Christ is talking about here. 
We're not just talking about eternal future marked with those obvious eternal blessings, but we're talking about our earthly experience as a child of the King. If you are tired in your hearing this morning, I get that. That's the way we all are as adults and children learners. Would you pause for a minute? Make sure you're back in with me for a second. I'm about to make a statement that I think is worthy of you hearing. Probably worthy of you recording somewhere. As children of God, we can expect that God's intent for us who are walking faithfully with Him, we can expect that He will bless us in the here and now, not just in the future. Listen, as a child of God who's walking, at least attempting to walk faithfully with God, I can have the expectation that God's heart and desire and intention is to bless me. Amen? I promise you. I don't, that doesn't always mean financial gain. Often it doesn't. Some of the most blessed believers I know are some of the poorest believers I've met in the world. Seven, eight family members in lean-to shacks that are the size of mine in your bathrooms. Yet the joy, the relationship that's vibrant with their Savior, it bubbles over. Oh, we can expect that our Father desires to bless us as His children. Think about yourself as a parent or a grandparent. Is there greater joy? Is there greater joy in your life but to bless your children? Sometimes to surprise them. Sometimes to say, hey, be steady in this and here's what comes. Either way, it's fun, isn't it? I love doing it. I want to be able to bless my children. So there's an expectation that that's what God desires. Jesus has said, I've come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Not just then, but here and now in our earthly experience. So this here and now abundance, church, is evidence in our relational experiences with a deep satisfaction of sharing our lives with one another. This here and now abundance can often be evidenced in our spiritual experiences as we seek to know God more intimately and He speaks quietly to us through His Word providing guidance and wisdom. That's abundance. This here and now abundance is evidenced in our physical experiences as we sit down at the dinner table for a meal. Something is simple. <laughs> as a beautifully crafted donut, right? And a perfectly prepared cup of coffee. It's God's provision. It's His blessing. It's an earthly experience, but it reminds us of abundance that God has produced in our lives. This here and now abundance is evidence in our emotional experiences, as at times we feel joy and peace and love. In those moments that we perhaps pause and we realize that God's never abandoned us. He's remained steadfast and He's granted us both His presence and His inexplicable peace. 
It's in those moments when our facial muscles, muscles involuntarily crack a smile. Nobody knows what's in our mind. But we just reflected on the joy, the beauty of whatever that moment is. About six weeks ago, I had one of those moments. I was getting ready to go to the University of Mobile. One of my Ph.D. students had graduated and um, was being made president of the University of Mobile. And Ginger and I had been invited to go down and to celebrate with he and his wife, Penny, and we were eager to do so. And in the midst of that, I was invited to share an address during the inaugural uh, celebration. Needless to say, church, if I'm just peeling back in transparent, public speaking is not the thing that I'm most confident about in life. And so I was a bit nervous. Actually, a whole lot nervous. My daughter, oldest daughter, daily knew that. And the night before we were going, I was rehearsing and going back over and printing out my speech. Twelve minutes, that's what I had. Lockstep, twelve minutes. I was nervous. She lingered in my study for an hour and a half. She let me rehearse it. She spoke back things to me. There was a tenderness. I may be getting in trouble for this. There was a tenderness of heart. The next morning, early, so we had to catch our flight. It was about 4, 4.30. I walked into my study to pick up a few things. I found this on my desk. May the God of peace go with you. Love you. Exclamation mark. That's Philippians chapter 4. I told Ginger, even if I get up and I bomb it in front of all those dignitaries, presidents of fancy colleges, this was enough. This was a moment of abundance. A moment of abundance. Church, I'm, I'm challenging you this week. Find evidence of God's provision of abundant life in everyday experiences. Find that moment of abundance for that day before you close your eyes. Offer a word of thanks for how God has been provider in your life. What you will find is that you're a more thankful man, a more thankful woman. You'll find yourself to be a more grateful boy, a more grateful girl. And you'll begin to find yourself looking for God's favor. When we do that for the next seven days, we'll return next week a people more prepared 
more desirous to worship our risen Savior, who is indeed our entry into eternal life, and who is the one who daily protects and blesses us. Praise be to the Lord. Amen. Well, this morning, we arrive at the time in our service where we get to celebrate the abundance of the life we have in Christ. Jesus said, I am the door, and the means of that entry, it was through his death and resurrection. So here we set before us a table, a table, a communion table. It indeed represents what Christ has done for us. There is bread at the table. It demonstrates Christ's broken body given for us. It shows us the shed blood of Christ through the cup. Jesus celebrated this meal the last night of his life with his closest companions. And we celebrate it this morning together as brothers and sisters. Indeed, the meal consists of the two elements, the bread and the cup. The bread represents Christ's body given for us. Luke records this experience of the upper room. Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks for it. Then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to his disciples saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This morning as you are invited to come forward, our servants will be standing here at the front. One will be holding bread. And as you approach... You tear off a piece of bread. You're going to hear that servant speak a word of blessing over you. Let's don't be rushed. Let's hear that blessing. A blessing is this, in remembrance that Christ's body was given for you. That's what we're remembering. In the same way, the cup represents the new covenant between God and his people. Luke writes, after supper, Jesus took another cup of wine, and he said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. After you've taken the bread, you will take a step over and you will receive a cup. As you take that cup, you'll hear a servant speak over you in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you. I want to encourage you, let those statements wash over your soul this morning. We're proclaiming what Christ has done and we're proclaiming His promised return. So indeed, if you have confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you've been baptized, you're invited this morning to come to the table and taste and see that the Lord is good. You're invited to delight this morning in His grace. So we celebrate communion as a family of believers, as a means of remembering what Christ has done on the cross. Indeed, is a way of proclaiming the coming banquet when Christ will feast with us at the table. But if you're not a Christian this morning, if you've never entered into eternal life through the doorway of Christ, we're going to ask you not to come forward this morning. Oh, it's not awkward. Don't worry about it. Just stay there. Consider the claims of Christ. Consider that you can't earn your way to heaven by your good works. And instead of taking this meal, take Christ. Receive him. Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Save me, Lord Jesus, a place in heaven with you. Take Christ this morning. Well, here in a moment, the music will play. The deacons will come forward and prepare our table. We'll have a brief word of prayer. And then we'll be readied to take communion together as a family. Our worship team will partake first and they'll make their way to lead us through song.
As you are prepared, then you will be invited to make your way forward. Listen, if you're a member, uh, if you're a guest today and um, all of this seems a bit unusual in the way that we're taking it, that's not normal in a Baptist church. I understand that. There's something special about coming to the table. That's why we're asking you to come and experience the table that way this morning. But you're free. Relax. You're free to just observe this morning. Nobody's going to be watching. We're all going to be focused on what Christ is doing in our midst here at the altar this morning. So you come as the Lord leads you this morning. Let's pray together. Our deacons will be coming forward to prepare the table. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for your love and grace. We thank you for the goodness we see exhibited in the table this morning. Lord, do your work in us. And we thank you for your love and your kindness this morning. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.